0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. We're back today, season nine, episode two, with David Hogg. Now, last week, if you remember, and if you haven't listened, press pause and go listen to part one, because... It'll just make all of this make a lot more sense for you, obviously. But we talked to David Hogg, a gun violence activist who was in school. He was a senior in high school when his school, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, was the site of a terrible massacre that caused him and a number of his classmates to co-found March for Our Lives. They went to D.C., they marched, and they have been major voices in the conversation about gun violence in the United States. But guess what? not that much has changed. And so what I want to talk about in this second half of the show and what David and I get into is how do you deal with the fact that you come in, you're ready to go, you're fired up and you just want to make change and then you just hit the wall. And how do you deal with the fact that you realize like it's actually, this is a generational project. And that what I, it's what I call the trough. The idea of you come in, you're very, very excited to get started. You Put a lot of effort into it. You think you're going to see some progress. And then guess what? You don't. So, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how you sort of, as an activist, don't just get sucked in so that your entire life becomes about this activism, but how you have a normal life. And I know that David has been working on that and he shares kind of his whole struggle with living a normal life as a, as a teenager, right? Now he's in his 20s, but still, just when he was a teenager, he was kind of taken away from a normal life and, and the rust into this very intense world of activism. We're going to talk about what he wants to do after school. Hint, hint, not invest in banking. Okay, <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but that's not what he's going to do. And finally, we're going to talk about his perspective on what it's really going to take to make change because his theory of change has changed and he's come to realize that it is at times okay to make deals with people and take less than what you wanted but still make progress. So a lot of things with David in this episode, really thoughtful as usual. Like last week, if you listened, he's just a smart guy, thoughtful guy, and very honest. And so you're gonna love this episode. Now, small ask of the week. I'm gonna just ask you to do a little follow-on to last week's homework. Last week's small ask was to think of something you want to get involved with and figure out sort of a cause that is near and dear to your heart and your community or in the world. Here's your follow-up homework. Find one thing you can do to advance that cause. All right, and now on to the interview, picking up on the second half of my conversation with David Hogg, starting now. You throw yourself into this making change and you have people doing it with you and you see the movement building and then you hit the stone wall. You You run into the wall that is the bureaucracy and the elected officials who are not representing the will of their constituents because they're conflicted or they're taking money or whatever, despite the fact that, you know, and in many intransigent issues in this country, the vast majority of people have a viewpoint that is not being served by their legislatures, and then a lot of people just give up. That you know, a couple years into it, they're like, "I've done my best. I, I can't anymore." And that's when you kind of have to. I call it the trough. It's like you you just sort of end up in a spot where you're sort of like ready to give up. And I think you've in particular had to deal not just with the fact that you had to, you know, sort of recalibrate the way you think about success but you've dealt with a lot of you know unfair crazy stuff whether it's conspiracies claiming you're a crisis actor whether it's having a tussle with marjorie taylor green which you know anybody can you know google that just the, the the stuff that that you've kind of endured there i'm just curious like from a mental kind of wellness perspective like and taking care of yourself like how do you how do you sort of get up every day and just you know live a life that isn't entirely consumed by these things that can be so intense.
1: Well, I mean, I did, uh, for a long time, let those things consume me. I took a gap year after the shooting and worked on this every day. Um, and it was really going to college that forced me to have to learn how to get that balance, uh, to know how to delegate effectively. You know, I I think a lot of probably a lot of people who started companies can relate to this way more than I can. But I I think March in some ways, when we started it with 20 plus co-founders, to a lot of us, it felt like our, you know, our baby. And we had to make tough decisions because we all had to go to college or we had to go and, you know, just move on with our lives in terms of knowing that this is not something that all of us are going to do with our lives and feeling okay with that and dealing with the survivor's guilt uh, of, of that. And for me, the way that I learned to gain that balance was having to learn how to do it if I wanted to continue doing the work because I just flew into a brick wall my freshman year where my PTSD was at the worst place it had ever been um, because I I literally had PTSD from the work after the shooting in addition to the shooting. Uh, because of all the threats, because of the times when people tried running me off the road because of you know things like my house getting swatted because of things like you know future Congress people chasing me when I was 18 years old screaming over and over again that the shooting at my high school you know somehow was 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 fake that you know were a bunch of communist gun you know just stupid smear campaigns against children and that's the thing that's really upset me more than anything the older i get is it's looking back at us and at the time being like okay whatever like we're doing this work and we we're, we're young people and we care and these things are just going to happen but as i get older the more i realize the more i realize how wrong and disgusting it is the way that we were treated as children we were 17 years old when we started and you know i don't care if you if you agree with me or not, or if you're how liberal or conservative you are. Fox News anchors should not be going after 17-year-old children on national television. Uh, 40-plus-year-old, you know, future members of Congress should not be harassing children who went through a school shooting, regardless of whether or not you agree with them. And it's not like I'm like, oh, poor me. It's just that I think I look back at those things and I I'm upset as an adult now for my younger self and all of my other friends who were so young because we were just kids right and we may have had so much courage and may have been so eloquent but ultimately we were traumatized children and to go through what we what I've seen so many of my friends and myself and others go through and look back at us not just really like oh like that was me but think back and see us just as, as we were, as traumatized children. To see the, the, the conservative landscape go after us in that way, it's just disgusting. Um, and the real challenge for me was learning how to be a student and be a college student and be a normal young person again instead of a 24-7 activist. And the way I learned to do that was just setting up normal routines and learning how to say no to the work. And being able to delegate and having faith in the March for Our Lives staff and team to know that, you know, if I needed to step back and you know take some time off, that they were gonna continue doing the work even when I wasn't there. FOMO
0: Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled babbe com FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com FOMO. That's netsuite.com FOMO. netsuite.com FOMO. FOMO. That makes a lot of sense. You see, I mean, when you look at people who are activists... It can eat up, I mean, the work is so important that it can feel like you have to give everything to it. And that, you know, that path is really hard to follow. You you know, you're at Harvard now, you're a senior. How have you spent your time up in Boston? Like, what have you been doing over these last four years, um, intellectually or otherwise, that, you know, as part of this sort of transition into being a student again?
1: So what I've been doing over these past four years is, is studying history. And the reason why I decided to study history is because I wanted better context of how we got here. Um, so I've really focused a lot on post World War II uh, American history, focused on some of the history of American conservatism, uh, the US intelligence community, and social movements. And what I've found, you know, from that is that one, I've, I've come to believe that storytelling and art are the You know, despite thinking when I started out that those were some of the most useless things in the world, frankly, you know, very naively when I was 17, I've come to realize that storytelling and art are the most powerful things in the world. And I've kind of used my studies of those things as a way of forcing myself to learn how to not do the work 24 7, uh, which has been incredibly useful. While I've been up here, I've also just focused on being a normal student and, and, just go ahead to college, you know, going to parties, going to, you know, just hang out with friends and work on class projects. Like right after this, I have to go and work on a, a project for my science of cooking class because I'm done with all my required classes for my concentration. Um, and I'm making nine different sourdough starters into pancakes to see this experiment that we're working on. I guess
0: the pandemic hasn't so, ended for you.
1: No, no. That, that not. Um, but. The other thing is just learning, re-engaging with the things that I really love and learning new things that I love. Like during COVID, I I think in some ways, as horrible as it was, I think it kind of, it may have saved my life because it forced me to stop traveling and really confront a lot of the things like my PTSD and grieve in a way that I was not able to because I was traveling so much constantly. And being in college, it's been a a learning process more than anything academic about learning how to be a human being in it a, and a, a uh, you know young adult with balance in my life and learning to do the work while also learning the importance of having fun because ultimately this isn't going to end in one election cycle, unfortunately, as I think many of us thought it would in 2018 because we felt like that's what the adults were telling us is, oh, thank God the kids are here to save us. And, you know, this is going to be solved in this election cycle. And it wasn't, and it, it's not going to be. It's going to take a lifetime, you know, and what I come back to one thing that John Lewis told a lot of the co-founders after the shooting, like a week after the shooting, which is this is a marathon, not a sprint. And what I've been doing in college is learning how to build up the endurance through having balance and having fun and not feeling guilty about it uh, to be able to do this for as long as it takes and possibly beyond if we have to pass that baton on
0: i'm curious you know you're coming out of school now you studied history lots of harvard seniors who study history are going to be applying to mckinsey right now um or maybe Goldman Sachs or something what are you thinking about doing like what do you i mean it would be shocking to me if you said well i'm going to morgan stanley but you know that could be an option but uh, what are you thinking about for your future like where would you like to apply your talents and your experience
1: you know, I'm certainly going to have some aspect of me doing this work and working in, in, you know, helping elect young people so long as I'm a young person, right? Mm-hmm. We we just helped elect our first member of Congress, Maxwell Frost, who I'd worked on his camp. I was literally on his campaign calls, on his kitchen cabinet calls this time last year, every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. in my dining hall. And now he's going to Congress as the first Afro-Cuban person ever and the, the first Gen Z at the age of 25. Um and, and stories like that are incredibly inspiring to me, and I, I don't ever want to leave that out of my life. But I'm, I'm increasingly interested in some level of social entrepreneurship as well. I'm not totally sure of what that will look like or what it will be. Um, but it's very clear to me that, you know, unfortunately, much, much of this country is run by money, especially in politics. And if we're ever going to really build up a, a substantial political machine to start winning, and bringing safety for our kids and people of all ages inside and outside of their schools, it's its going to require a lot of, you know, capital. And of course, that can come from other people, you know, uh, small dollar donors and stuff like that. But really, its it's not sustainable because that relies on people's attention spans. And people are very emotional investors, especially liberals, when it comes to change. Whereas conservatives, you know, my, my, met- my metaphor for this is always that conservatives invest in creating change the way that, you know, a retirement fund does. They, they basically invest in the S&P 500 of change, uh, you know, some well-diversified set of, you know, high-cap stocks that, you know, are relatively safe and aren't going to be explosive in growth but will have sustainable growth for years to come. And they invest every year, you know, a similar amount regardless of whether or not the market is going up. That year, or if it's going down, they continuously invest. Whereas liberals, and the way that we invest is, we go after the shiny new, you know, dot com bubble or whatever it is, constantly because it seems like, oh, this is, you know, and we'll invest a ton of money into the Barack Obamas of the world, you know, which is nice because they are really compelling storytellers. But that, you know, that's not how change is made. That's one person. The way change is made in a system like ours through federalism is massive systematic investment at every level. And uh, we really have to learn how to change that investment uh, strategy for change uh, if we're ever going to really succeed in the long term. So that's kind of what I'm interested in and pos- potentially doing maybe even a podcast or something in the future because I do like talking to people and and storytelling.
0: FOMO FOMO. Yeah, it's powerful. It's interesting what you say. I mean, I think about this a lot when you think about the changes in the courts in America. The Federal Society, for those international listeners, you know, yeah. it's this organization that basically operates at all the law schools across the country. And even one of my friends from undergrad, Georgetown, was part of that. And now he's a federal judge. And it's sort of like the way they vetted people. And then when somebody becomes president, they get a list of people from federal society and say, put these people in. And then you you institutionalize a specific kind of conservative judge and that doesn't really exist on the other side of the spectrum. What is interesting, and I'm curious what you think about this, when we think about gun violence in particular, I kind of think about, you know, let's think about other systemic change in America like marriage equality. That's one of those things that used to be a right-left issue and now has become much more, um, you know, there will theoretically be passed in, in the U.S. Congress this year, marriage equality that'll have bipartisan support. Why? because people on both sides have family members and kids and stuff and all of a sudden when it's in your family you suddenly seem to care about it it's like oh i was you know i was against it before but my daughter is wants to marry a woman so i want to you know support this now which is i mean it is what it is but the thing about gun violence is that it doesn't discriminate depending on ideology and you have a generation of kids growing up that are practicing drills in school shootings or living through shootings and it's affecting their lives. And I wonder if you think, you know, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but it's like, it's sort of inevitable because you have a generation of Americans who are personally affected by this and they're not gonna stand for it not changing. The question is how long does it take? Is that, does that feel reasonable to you?
1: I think it's optimistic. Hmm. I, I don't think that on its own though, is gonna be enough for us to create the necessary change. And the reason why I say that is, you know, when I, in some of the research and classes that I've taken on social movements, you know, uh, especially in regards to things like revolution, there's this common uh, misconception that I had when I went into a lot of these classes as well, uh, which is that, you know, the more oppressive a regime is, the more likely the people are to rebel. It's actually uh, not the case, basically, ever, uh, at least from what the data show of, you know, what helps predict predict if, if there really is anything, what helps predict, you know, whether or not the people are likely to rebel against their government. And obviously, you know, full blown, uh, violent or nonviolent revolution is not what we're talking about identically here. But I think it speaks to a certain aspect of human psychology of how things become normalized that people look at and they think, you know, how, how is that possible? How, How do people just accept that reality constantly? And the in the parallel that I think we could draw here is, you know, people look at us from other countries at our healthcare system, specifically, you know, from places that have some form of socialized healthcare, and they think how how can Americans think this is normal? How can they think that it's normal to pay ridiculously high prices for healthcare, uh, go into debt for all this stuff, and they just see it as completely insane, right? But it's a world that we've continued to live in, uh, despite basically every other other high-income country developing some form of socialized medicine, right? We have ACA here, but it's not anywhere near the same scale as most of these other high-income countries. And that's my fear, is that we can't, it's not enough just to, we can't just assume that things are going to change because they get so bad. Because unfortunately, people just have things come up in their lives and they get, they get used to it until it affects them. But even when it does affect them at times, they still just move on with their lives because they have so many other things going on. What we have to do is find a substantial percentage uh, within the the group that has been impacted to sustainably and continuously do this work every single year uh, to make progress on it. And I think that's what we're trying to develop is is the necessary community to build persistence to create change. Because my view, my model of creating social change is and this might sound a little weird, it's like walking into a door over and over again. You don't have complete control of whether or not the door opens all of a sudden, but you have to keep walking into it because ultimately if it does open and you're not there to walk through it, you won't make progress. And that's how I kind of see these things happening is it requires a combination of variables that are within your control and variables that are outside of your control uh, with the stars aligning kind of. And the only thing that you can focus on is what is within your control. And the way that you do that is building a persistence so that eventually you do succeed. And the way that you have, you build that persistence is by doing work, doing things not related to the movement, as as counterintuitive as that might sound. Uh, because it is exhausting. You know, working around parents who have lost their children in school shootings and different acts of gun violence is, exhausting it's even more exhausting for the people that have gone through it of course right they have to learn how to build up that persistence when they've literally gone through the worst thing any parent could ever imagine happening to them and i think the way that we do that is learning how to build community and and as weird as it sounds learning to in some ways to have fun with each other despite what has happened to all of us because if just being sad ended this if this just being horrible ended this It would have ended long before we had this conversation because it would have ended before Sandy Hook.
0: Yeah, it's so true,
1: Uh, David. If people want to support your work, how can they do that? They can support our work by going to by one by voting Mm -hmm. uh, in every election Mm -hmm. and researching the candidates. I highly recommend uh, if you're you know voting by mail or I think in most states you can do this. Uh, Voting is not a standardized test. Uh, I'm pretty sure in most states. From what I know, you can take out your phone and look up the candidates when you're voting. Uh, do that. If you don't know what their positions are, look them up and see who's endorsed them. You know, if there are gun safety groups or otherwise that have supported them or what, whatever it might be. And the second thing uh, is supporting us sustainably. March for Our Lives needs support, not just after uh, an election cycle or after, you know, another horrifying instance of gun violence happens, because uh, we need to act proactively here. Uh, and stop shootings before they happen. And the best way to do that is helps us is to help support us with a, a monthly contribution of, like, 5 or $10 or whatever you can uh, at marchforourlives.com. And that enables us to do this work when it's in the news and when it's not, because really, it should be in the news every day because it is happening so often, every single day. It's just, it's not in the form of, uh, you know, very... Uh, it's not in the form of school shootings with a massive amount of spectacle and, and crying children, but nonetheless, there are still people that are crying every day because of this issue. There are multiple mass shootings happening every day in our country in the form of these individual shootings that have a detrimental impact on communities uh, daily. So if you want to support our work, you, I would ask that you donate you know, whatever you can, 5 or $10 a month, um, or a one-time contribution at com.
0: All right, if you want to follow David on Twitter, which... I do. And I think it's very valuable. I mean, Twitter is terrible, but you're good. You can go to David Hog 111. If you want to find him on Instagram, he's at David Miles Hog. David Hogg, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. FOMO.